My relationship with Australia is a complex one. It is home and yet no longer home at the same time. And I, I, I miss it desperately. I miss the light and the colour and the texture. I miss the landscape and the people and the way in which I guess I, I automatically understand cultural structures and signifiers in a way that they mystify me here. You're listening to Interno, a podcast profiling artists who are recalibrating their internal lives and perspectives of home, longing and connection during the global pandemic, as well as the ideas that amplify artistic value and social duty in times of flux. I'm your host, Mariam Ursilia, and I'm privileged to create Interno on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. My guest for episode three is Sarah Morowitz, an Australian-born, American-based artist, investigator, and method maker. Sarah explores the emotional and psychogeographical forces behind scientific actions and systems. Using her body as an apparatus and an archive, her performance-driven and interdisciplinary work unravels the processes of methodological labor. Sarah surveys the exhaustive, the obsessive, the poetic and the absurd inherent within the realm of science. Now based in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Sarah was living in New York for almost seven years and this is when she contracted coronavirus in April 2020. And in this episode, we discuss what it's like to survive this virus while living in a megacity that is constantly rearranging its civic behaviors. We also talk about the importance of university arts degrees and the benefits of collaborating with people from other fields like NASA scientists. We zoom in on two of her pivotal works, How the Stars Stand, which required the artists live and sleep according to time and planet Mars, and Et Long, a monumental performance that saw Sarah recreate her own meter step by step, starting from Dunkirk and ending at Barcelona, a feat that took almost four months. My conversation with Sarah takes place on the 4th of July while she was still living in New York. So I'll preface this by saying you might hear some street fireworks in the background. Interno is made possible with support from this Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane. We hope you enjoy this episode. Sarah, thank you for joining me on Interno. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Today is the 4th of July, which is Independence Day in the United States of America. Before we dive in, I just wanted to check in to see where you're at at this present moment. So I am currently in my apartment in Brooklyn, in New York. And what does the energy feel like over there with the recent events that have happened? Like, does this Independence Day feel different to other years? This Independence Day, I would have to say, is remarkably different to any other that I've, I've had here over the years. Uh, there are no real sort of signs of festivities. There are usually street parties, an atmosphere in the city of everybody going outside and really enjoying this sort of the summer. Of course, there's people still still doing things, but it's definitely a different approach within the city itself and recognising how much the city's gone through and is still going through and how cautious we have to be about being in groups together. And this is something that you were conscientious about from the start because New York was fast becoming a pandemic hotspot. And in early April, you and your husband, Darren Nguarda, tested positive for COVID-19. What was it like to live with and survive the virus? We were in that first wave. 
uh, that, that came through New York. It was really serious. I was very ill. I've never been that ill in my life. Um, you know, it was quite frightening to to have breathing difficulties and to sort of be lying down grasping for air. The hospitals were absolutely overrun. We didn't want to call an ambulance if we didn't have to, but the doctors had warned us if we got worse, like that would be the next call. You know, I guess as the reality, had we been in Australia, we would have absolutely gone to hospital. Right, the right. situation of the circumstances here meant we had to try and just do our best mm. and, and look after ourselves. Prior to contracting coronavirus, what were the precautions that you were initially taking to avoid contamination? Um, we did all of the things that you were supposed to do, quote unquote. Uh, we socially distanced. We were going to the supermarket in gloves. We had clothes that we only wore outside. We were washing all of our all of our produce in the bathtub when it came in. We were like furiously washing our hands, and we still got sick. It's an illness that has is highly contagious. Anyone can get it. Seeing the caskets being stored on Hart Island. They dug a mass grave because there were literally a thousand people dying in the city every day. They just had nowhere to store the bodies and they were keeping them in um, refrigerated vans and they, they just, they, no one could have funerals because they were doing them via Zoom. And there was that moment of I was sick and I was watching this, recognizing the line between where I was and and, and those, those scenes. I don't have a, 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 a will or a funeral plan. You know, I have to reconcile if something happened to me, how do I, how do I process that? And, you know, I, I'm far from family and a lot of loved ones. Well, I'm glad to know you're feeling much better now. I'm, I'm very glad we're feeling better as well. It, it was a, a huge relief uh, when things started to improve. And in what ways do you think this pandemic has played a role in exposing the underlying inequalities of our current society? Yeah, I think just the year as a whole has been kind of remarkable in this regard. It, it's been really hard to keep your spirits up. Because bushfires in Australia, then there was COVID, and then the, the video of George Floyd and the, the story of Breonna Taylor, Black Lives Matter, and just... Trump as an ongoing denominator in, in all US activities, looking at how those enormous moments of 2020 have illustrated the structural inequities that we've been living with and the sort of illogical undercurrents that underpin everyday life in this moment in time. They've always been there, they've always existed, but I think that COVID in particular is stripped bare some of those sort of ways in which they're veiled and it's pulled into focus how, how we're going through, you know, all of these things together, but how, how our experience of those things are different for each of us. Mm. Can you elucidate these differences that you've noticed? Uh, for example, how did New York people uh, respond to the outbreak? Big sections of New York actually left the city so you know in manhattan in the wealthier neighborhoods or you know they fled town as soon as the pandemic hit going to houses in the country and actually spreading the virus across the country as well at the other end of the spectrum 
there was so so much more suffering. I mean, the, the people that had to stay, who had to work, who had to get the subway, and they were more likely to be exposed. They were more likely to lose their jobs. They were more likely to be evicted. The way in which COVID has sort of yeah, lifted that veil so you go, okay, not only are they more likely to be affected by the virus due to the nature of their work or the amount that they have to travel to get to work and their interactions that they have to perform as part of their job, which is also now deemed an essential service, not that they're paid as an essential service, but they're, they're considered an essential service. Uh, they're also more likely to have suffer the long-term effect and that they're more likely to have repercussions that they can't deal with long-term. Seeing that kind of play out on a, on a, on a mass scale has been really alarming and sort of, you know, aside from the very personal um, effects of being ill myself and how hard that was to deal with, I think I've been more alarmed at sort of witnessing where that kind of social network isn't available, how people slip through the cracks or, or aren't taken care of. And it's alarming to then see how that same narrative is being introduced into the way Australia thinks about it. Yeah, uh, exactly. This disparity between privilege and marginalized people in Australia is ever present. For instance, we've seen what happened with the police rolling out militia-like quarantine rules for the 3,000 residents in Melbourne's public housing complex. And I understand there was an urgency to contain the spread, but it just sounded like the initial rollout deprioritized the urgent needs of these residents, which was food medical counselling and work compensation. That came later in light of community pressure. I, I saw that on the news. That's crazy. I, I I can't believe that that's the approach that's been taken. I mean, it's you can't sort of segregate in that way and assume that a sector of the community is more responsible than another. I outright reject that as, as a concept, particularly as someone who has been in New York through the, an epicentre of the pandemic. I think I heard someone say, oh, we're all in this, you know, we're all in the same boat. We're all in this together. And I was like, no, we're all in the same storm, but we're in very different boats. And sort of really taking this moment to acknowledge that going, okay, you know, we could all be weathering this and we can all relate to the, the, the storm around us, but the chaos of, of being on this little vessel on your own and its particularities and how you recognize the things that are hard for you, but the privileges that come with that have mm. defined this moment for me. Exactly. It's like using these slivers of relatability as learning moments. Here, plenty of Australians are currently stuck in hotel quarantine for 14 days. And reports have shown that confining people in cramped spaces with disconnection from the outside world leads to psychological strain and trauma, unsurprisingly. But, you know, try spending seven years trapped in Manus Island and see how much your mental and physical state deteriorates by then. Yeah. So the hope is that through mm. these comparative analogies that many of us in privileged positions have placed ourselves in, we can temporarily enter the mindset of what we have done as a society to marginalized people for centuries. And from there, we can hopefully elevate our civic duty by continuing to talk about these dark spots in Australia's history and making tangible actions that truly fix social injustice. Totally. I think thinking of the, the extremes of all these situations, how, how people in just through the smallest inconveniences to their lives have, have hopefully maybe recognised, all right, we, we allow these things to continue uh, in much more 
aggressive uh, and damaging ways for a whole range of people to support that life. We need to actually do the work on all of these other issues and sort of address how those instances are actually applied to people that we try and forget or, or try and ignore because it's inconvenient or we don't want to deal with the reality. Well, speaking of finding ways to draw attention to these kinds of realities, you've been balancing social distancing with social activism, particularly because you live in Clinton Hill near Barclays Center, where a majority of the Black Lives Matters protests happened. You're immunocompromised as you're still in recovery, but you also wanted to be involved in the protests because of your stance on human rights. And even your Facebook profile photo I see is a, a motto that says question authority. Why is it important for you to be an ally out on the streets in this climate? Protest became just necessary. It became absolutely indispensable way of communicating the feelings and raw emotion of what, what had been seen. Uh, instances of hor- horrific racism, as tests so often are. But I think juxtaposed against COVID in the silence of COVID or in that sort of that moment where everyone was at home and everyone had a little bit of distance from their their regular lives these these instances were amplified and you couldn't really sort of be on the sidelines of this i had to be there to be beside and advocate for people who had been treated so poorly by the the systems of power that govern this city and govern the state and govern this country and sort of be a, a body that stands and says, no, this isn't right and we need to change. When you see what's being done and see how the administration responded, there was just this need to vocally stand against racism and that outweighed the risk. You and your husband, Darren, have been living in America for almost seven years now, having relocated from Australia to New York City so that Darren could work at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. What does he do exactly? So Darren is a computational mathematician. Uh, He works on their ocean model uh, for climate change research. So the NASA office in New York is specifically geared towards like planetary sciences. Uh, and as part of that, they, they work on, I guess, delivering a predictions about how the climate is going, which, you know, there's another fun topic of discussion <laughs> that's kind of been pushed to the side this year. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, totally. Uh, actually, did you see this meme from a short while ago? Oh, what was it? Um, it was... Um, climate change should really hire the PR rep for coronavirus. Absolutely should, because it it could use all the help it could get, honestly. Mm, Because I've actually wondered if the quarantine issues adjacent to coronavirus have benefited any current studies by climate change scientists or climate crisis scientists, because we're seeing low carbon emissions, because people aren't traveling the world by air and cruise ships as much anymore. And the virus and economic collapse have kept people inside, which leads to decreased pollution rates in congested cities and cleaner skies and oceans. Does this rare event mean scientists like your husband can analyze their data more concretely? The work he mainly does is on like predictive with like creating a model and sort of predicting the future. But if we have talked about the fact like the sky in New York since coronavirus has been clearer, uh, the air has been better. Uh, and yes, the, the large scale impacts of what that will do to the climate. There's a lot of unknowns, but I definitely think there's a lot of interesting research that's sort of being explored, whether this is 
this will have enough of a lasting impact or not. I'm, I'm not sure. It depends on if we go back to normal, whatever normal is. <laughs> Every time we talk about a new normal, there seems to be a newer normal that comes around the corner to throw everyone off. So I don't even know what a new normal is now. Totally. I'd like to talk about the synergies of art and science in terms of your marriage next. We know that art and science have been interlinked for centuries, but in terms of your union, how does Darren's research inform you as an artist and how have your creative-led methodologies affected the way that he views his work through a phenomenological lens? Art and science are uh, uh, obviously a big topics for us that kind of make up the fabric of day-to-day life. Uh, you know, we, we, they're interchangeable. We move from one to the other without really thinking about where those divides are. Maybe more than anything, um, our partnership, um, both in our lives and, you know, through our collaborations in my work, uh, have led me to sort of really recognise that the boundaries are much more blurry than we allow ourselves to believe and that there is a huge creative process that drives both disciplines. That, you know, we both approach a problem and sort of try and view it from multiple perspectives and work our way through it to, to achieve an outcome. I am specifically driven by the sort of philosophical investigations that have shaped science, specifically looking at what science is and how science operates. So what are these methods that make science science, essentially? Darren is integral to that. While he's involved in quite specific technical aspects of my work as well, uh, the most value I think is in understanding how experiments work and operate in the field. As an artist then sort of trying to interpret those and give them physicality and texture and lived experience. So how can I make this idea of the scientific experiment visible? And so having, having him at home, very useful. <laughs> Visit your 2015 performance, How the Stars Stand. In this durational and acclimatizing work, you take up residency at Open Source Gallery in Brooklyn, and you lived and performed according to daily time on the planet Mars, which is similar to the length of an Earth day, but with an additional 39 minutes and 35 seconds, which uh, equates to... 2.7% longer um day day than on earth and i read somewhere that it wasn't noticeable for you at first but the more you were adding incremental minutes into your day to align with mars time or soul time the more you were drifting away from an earthlings timeline into a martian rhythm and so you were eventually performing days that saw you waking up and having breakfast at 7 or 8 p.m and starting your day at a time when people were winding down to go to sleep and you eventually fell out of sync with our planet and fully adapted to soul time by the 37th day. So humans are by nature heliocentric beings. Uh, I mean, we live according to the rhythms of the sun, Australia being a prime example of this. What is it like to remove yourself from that lived experience of Earth and abide by a living schedule that nobody else around you it was following? it catches you quite slowly. So, you you know, at first it's just a little shift 
a little a little moment where you notice that the church bell that was ringing at six is suddenly ringing at 5.20, then 4.40, then 4. Then, so, and, it, and it just moves through the day. And the first week or so didn't feel particularly odd. And then there's a, so there's a point around day maybe 11 or 12 where suddenly things started to get weird. You recognise that your morning ritual was out of step with everybody else's. Like you were trying to get coffee when everyone else was going out to dinner and you were having breakfast at these sort of like odd times or you were trying to buy a beer and it's 9am in the morning and people are looking at you like you, you have a problem. The, the more you explain, the more you're like, no, 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 it's 7pm for me. I'm living on time on Mars. They're definitely not going to serve you alcohol. <laughs> um, so what were the caveats that informed your schedule and what placeholders did you provide to people that you were talking to who were still running on Earth time? Yeah, so the, the way it worked was that I lived and worked from the gallery. I was allowed to leave, but I could only leave according, and do things according to time on Mars. So I could go meet friends, but they had to go have a meal with me based on my time schedule. So, you know, we, we'd have to go to a 24-hour diner and get breakfast or you know, they'd have to come have a burger with me at you know, 6 a.m. or whatever it was. So it took a little, it took a moment for them to sort of understand the process that was happening, that time was shifting for me and that it was, I was experiencing time differently to them. But once they sort of recognised the structure or that, that the structure was different, they wanted to kind of come along. And so there was, there was mechanisms to do that online through social media, but also coming into the gallery and going, what time is it for you now? What are you up to? Like, where are you in your day? And sort of that, that the dissonance between where they were and where I was, was, was really lovely. And those kind of communication, that sort of interaction was the highlight of the work. And who did you work with at NASA to realise these ideas into a fully formed project? I worked with both my husband on this and a scientist called uh, Michael Allison, who was actually one of the originators of the Mars 24 clock. He essentially made time for Mars. Wow. And I used the Mars 24 algorithm to sort of dictate my time. And the idea for the project was that I would live by Mars time for as long as it took for uh, my day to fall out of sync with Earth to completely invert and then to return to synchronicity. So that was... Uh, 37 Earth days, 36 mm. Martian souls. And what is it about the Mars timeline that captivates you? And how did you stumble upon this timeline in the first place? I guess the way I discovered uh, Mars time was in, in conversation with Michael Allison. We'd met to just talk about the philosophy of time in general. He's, he's a wonderful man who is not only an incredible scientist, but also interested in science fiction uh, and I guess that, that role in which science adapts to the arts. So he was very open and capable of sort of describing his research in, in, in um, a way that would both intrigue me and sort of, sort of explain it. When the rover, uh, Curiosity or Opportunity, are uh, you know, being operated by scientists here on Earth, they have to be awake when it has sunlight. So that means they're getting up at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., whatever time it is on Mars, that's their time. And it, it sort of is like that moment of awakening, like sort of a mind expansion moment. Like, okay, I didn't understand time before now. I thought I understood time because I, I you know, it's time. We all, we all use it every day. Recognizing that this group of scientists use it every time they're, they're operating the rover. So 
every time a new rover goes up, there's a crew that have to sort of live according to this time. And so I was interacting with a couple of them whilst doing the project via Twitter, sort of having conversations saying, you know, what soul are you up to? Like, where are you in your cycle? Because I will know how crazy you're getting right now because they, <laughs> that, that's a, all of the NASA scientists actually, when they describe the experience, they, the emotional space for them is not dissimilar. The only difference, I guess, was that they weren't living in a gallery. I was purely experiencing this alternate time. <laughs> Sounds like an interstellar jet lag. So how did this emotional space affect you? Um, it, <laughs> emotionally and psychologically traumatic uh it's it's a really disorienting thing in in some weird way it did shape my world around these specific parameters that dictated my life regardless of what else was going on around me my work uh has uh, on a whole always prepared me for concepts of duration and endurance and I'm continually drawn back to these uh, as structural methodologies. And I suppose all your previous methodologies have led you to and prepared you for your epic collaborative walking performance uh, in late 2013 called Etalon. In this psychogeography project, you walked by foot for 2,000 kilometers across 112 dates from Dunkirk in France to Barcelona in Spain. And during this time, you were accompanied by 11 women who walked different parts of this journey with you across the landscape. Before we discuss the mechanics of this work, I'd like to play an excerpt from a personal essay written by one of your Etalon walking partners, arts writer Sean Wolfe. An excerpt from the essay, Walking and Measuring, Sarah Morowitz, narrated by the author, Sean Wolfe. Eleven female colleagues, one of whom walked for three weeks, were organised to accompany the artist each week of a total of 14 walking weeks. Mostly artists and writers, the women participants of these weekly walking partnerships acquired varying levels of knowledge about the history of the original journey as a means of measuring the Earth's circumference. By volunteering to walk with the artist, many of these women experienced durational walking, the effects of the physical challenge in walking each distance, generally in excess of 100 kilometres over six days, and time lived through the pace of walking for the first time. Individually, their experience heralded a broad range of insights, in one case spanning from the border between two countries is invisible and walking is an art and that there is an art to walking to the importance of a good pair of socks, as quoted by Stephanie Brocci to the author. While on one hand, the women were students of the performance, their participatory action as equal and necessary walking partners, which included assisting with the practical matters of accommodation, directions, food preparation and portage, to taking photographic images of the artist in situ and assisting with the two-person task of setting up the target on a daily basis, acknowledges their additional role as co-producers of the work. Nice to hear her voice. <laughs> Same, I haven't seen Sean since before COVID. I asked her to record these words in her phone so that I could play this for you as a surprise. So she emailed this voice memo to me. Oh, I, I love Sean so much. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think she's in Sydney this weekend. Give her an elbow bump if you see her. I will do. <laughs> I'd like to know how this project transformed you. 
you know, the way that you measure time and space and the way you negotiated these collaborations with people throughout various legs of your walking journey and the collective labor and companionship and frustration and exhaustion and little triumphs that you've had together along the way. Firstly, can you talk about the impetus for Ecolon and what were the enduring moments that you took away from this experience? So I, I should never say never, but I, I, I'm not sure I will ever have an experience quite like Ecolon again. It was such a, a remarkable project it was a dream project and I was just so fortunate to get to share it with these incredible people who gave so much of themselves both physically and mentally and emotionally to making it happen they're family now and they're really important women who are incredible in their own right and make brilliant work Edelon was the dream project that I never you know, imagined I would actually get to make. Uh, I was doing my PhD research, trying to understand the structures that underpin the way in which we measure. You know, why is a day 24 hours long? Why is a meter the length that it is? And I was sitting at this very table in my apartment in Brooklyn, reading a book about the history of the meter, when I realized that the meter was a length that was determined by two French astronomers that traveled between Dunkirk and Barcelona to measure the curvature of the Earth and to determine the Earth's size basically for the first time, uh, get a really proper understanding and sort of the first sort of large-scale survey um, of that nature. And in, by measuring this distance, which is 10 degrees of latitude, they were able to work out what one ten millionth of the Earth's um, the length from the North Pole to the equator would be. So one ten millionth of a quadrant of it, the Earth. And that is basically what the length of the meter remains to be to this day. There's small tweaks to it, but that, that's how it was formed. And again, similarly with How the Stars Stand, learning about Mars time, realizing that the meter was this object that's relational to my body, is relational to the size of the planet, blew my mind. And I literally had my uh, typewriter on my desk hilariously and I sat and I just wrote a score for the work and basically as it's as it as it occurred that I would walk from Dunkirk to Barcelona and measure the earth to create my own meter. I was very fortunate to receive funding both from the Vitalehi Memorial Travelling Scholarship from GOMA in, in Brisbane and from the Australia Council to make this crazy thing happen and realizing that you know if you want to measure the curvature of the earth uh, it becomes a realistic, how do you make this happen? What are the logistics of, of bringing this into being? That it was a project that would require not only just my physical labor, but assistance. And like, how do you, how do you structure that assistance to, to make the project work? And what, what are the conditions or parameters that you want to sort of build into the work? In order to do the measurements, the scientific measurements that we were doing to measure the Earth each day of the project, you had to have a laser rangefinder and a, a target that could measure distance and using that data and the, the length of that distance to GPS points. Uh, Darren, my husband, could do some calculations and, and work out the size of the Earth. And from that, we could then determine the length of my meter. And we did that every day of the project to then average all that data out to work out a, a specific length. Practically, I needed two people to be able to take these measurements, but also the idea that the, a meter is a length between two points, that, that you are always sort of talking between 
two points and it's that space in between those two points that makes the object that makes the thing mm. and i like a third space or a heterotopic yeah I, I i love the idea that you know it would become a relay a yeah, conversation yeah. the only person that would witness the entirety of the performance would be me but there would be these vignettes that were sustained by other people that came along with the journey uh, and knowledge and the way that that would pass through and why did you call it etalon the word etalon uh, in French means both standard of measure and stallion or male horse. And I, etymologically, I was really obsessed with the idea that it was this incredibly masculine trope, that, it, it, you know, the idea of the scientific expedition, that it was masculine, that there was two male scientists who undertook this incredible act of discovery. And I wanted to invert that, this idea of having female artists uh, accompanying me sort of came through that sort of discovery process. Sort of, I did a call out. It was essentially asking people through social media, hey, if I were to do this crazy walk across France, would anyone be interested in joining me? And I had a couple of people who I was really hoping would be on board, but obviously knew huge undertaking. Can you do it? Getting there and like fitting it into your own schedule and like the actual labor of it. Remarkably, a lot of people said yes. It was really incredible and humbling. Each, each person contributed so much to that experience. And so having now having had the time to sort of personally personally recover and sort of remove myself from that the really intense emotional space that I had to get into to do the the duration of the work to kind of return to each of them and have conversations about it and have those sort of moments to work through what it meant to them in the aftermath because it's a it was a strange experience each week we would transition over and there would be this moment where I had been walking with someone for a week and you develop an incredible bond of you know, understanding of how you walk together, work together. And then this moment where the, the next person arrives and I had to sort of uncouple <laughs> from my attention from one person and invested in, mm -hmm. in the, the new walker. And there would be this moment where I looked at them and I knew it was coming. Like I, I was trying to prepare them a few days in advance, like the day before we started, I started talking about endings, letting go and, and like trying to write, wind the experience down and sort of like talk through the emotion of it, but sort of knowing that people weren't really on understanding why I was doing that. Well, I can imagine it would be this hypersensitized thing to enter or exit a, a codependent lived experience. It's like a marathon where you share your walking life with these women who in turn be, become subsumed into your performance. And as they measure the meter, you measure your relationship to them. And at the end of journey A, you have to say goodbye because you need to continue journey B with the next participant. So how do you even reset for this kind of intensity and, and, yeah, and I tried to put in structures and like some of those were invisible structures and some of them were quite obvious, like, you know, handing over equipment to the next participant and giving them time to talk through the process. I, I still remember the look at each person's eyes, like when I kind of cha transitioned to starting to plan the next person and I, that feeling 
was palpable for me and it'd be interesting to see how they feel about it in the aftermath. I'd like to know the dynamic that you had with these participants. I know that Sean is a big walker who has walked the El Camino, but I'm unfamiliar with how he connected with the other walkers. Did you know them beforehand? Some people I knew very well. Some people I didn't, I hadn't actually met at all. It was really only online communication. Stephanie um, had actually contacted me online having followed the project and said, hey, could I come and do a week? And it just worked out that she could and it was incredible and uh, she's amazing like, to, to willingly contact someone online and say, hey, I'll meet you in you know, rural France and let's go walking for a week. It was, it was really um, incredible mm. that she did that. So what were the defining moments about this journey for you? There were, look, there's a lot of things that I really loved about this project, but one of them was that Every week, and regardless of people's experience or um, relationship with walking or performance, there was a moment, there were moments of kind of, there was an arc of experience where everyone felt a little nervous, then they felt they really enjoyed it and felt comfortable, then they found it incredibly hard. Like the third day was always tough for everybody just because of the intensity of it. And then everybody rallied like the fourth fifth and sixth day just remarkable strength of both you know, character and endurance and it, it was really wonderful to see people recognize how much they could do and how capable they were and how you know resilient they were and you know regardless of whether they thought they could make the distance everybody did and hearing stories now about people who have gone on to do other hikes and like other things that's so amazing too. recognize that they recognize mm. this as something they can absolutely do themselves yeah and incorporating these transformative moments into their own lives right yeah. um you know and that's all them. Mm. Um, but it was really wonderful to witness that as a, as a, as a person, as a friend and as, you know, uh, I guess a facilitator of this experience. And that's a very intimate thing that you may not know from seeing the work or the, the outcomes of it, but that's, mm. yeah, it's really special. I like though that you were still able to relay that intimacy, even though you were physically far away from people who were following your journey. Uh, online um, throughout your walk you brought along a jumble of equipment that enabled you to not only measure data accurately but to also diarize your progress and I remember following your journey up until the last day when you finally approached your destination in Spain at the 112th day and your face was a mixture of fatigue and sorrow and triumph and it was real and vibrational um, take me back to that last day of Etalon what did that feel like um it was incredibly bittersweet I was really really sad that it was over like I I think there was this weird transition of like trying to get across the border finishing France was a real you know emotional moment and then Spain felt like this I was very very emotional about it that I realized that I had achieved this thing but I I it was going to end and, and thinking about endings and thinking about completing something I realized at that point that my body was really starting to hurt in a way that it hadn't up till then uh, you know it obviously hurt uh, you know I, I grew there were, there were multiple uh, emotional outbursts of pain and, and suffering don't worry I, I wasn't a machine but there was a point where my body adapted and I was feeling quite strong uh, and capable that I think I started recognizing, oh, my, my hip is really hurting, oh, my knee is, is, it's giving me a bit more grief. But at the same time, I also went, 
huh, that's 2000 kilometers. Okay, let's do three. Like there was, that was sort of that recognition of this is what my life looks like now. You get so used to the internal rhythm and, and the, the practice of doing it, the ritual of doing it. And walking into Barcelona, into a large city, I, everything felt flat and disconnected. I, I realised I hadn't been in a large city for months or you know, in a quite that size and that scale. Sort of, and it was raining. It was one of the few days in the whole project it rained. It's almost as if your mind and body tremors as it uh, absorbs the vulgarity of urban noise and mega city bustle yeah. after you have undergone like such an intensely introspective and solitary rhythm of endurance within these outskirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a, a, all the emotion uh, all at once. It, it felt like a, a really surreal dreamscape. It didn't feel real that it would end. And then I just wanted to get up the next day and walk again. So what did you do the next day after the project ended? I spent a day or two in Barcelona and then I got on a train back to Paris because I actually wanted to witness the route a little bit. Like I didn't want to get a, a flight and I felt angry. I felt angry that I wasn't walking. I felt angry that I didn't know what that particular road that I saw along you know, the rail line yeah. felt like underfoot. I didn't know what the, the texture of things and the sort of the speed, the 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 noise, everything felt magnified and, and unnecessary. And I think uh, it's, it was very it was a very brutal experience to come back to New York, particularly at the beginning of winter, and realize the small apartment and see these kind of confined spaces after being truly outdoors and walking through nature and contemplating that kind of relationship with, with distance and with time in a very different way. Well, time and distance will look very different to you soon. Um, you and Darren are off to a new adventure where you will be leaving New York for a new life in Santa Fe in a couple of weeks. Oh, what's in store for you there? Yeah, so we've been in New York nearly seven years now, which has gone really, really quickly. And I can we, we love the city. We will always love the city, but we were ready to have a bit of a change. Uh, I think I've changed a lot since Edelon. I desperately want to be outside more. I want open space. I want to be able to walk. And my work, I think, as, as it, it continues to evolve, requires time outside or, or space to be outside, which New York offers many things, but, but particularly at this current moment, space outside is not one of them. And you're going to be living in, in an actual house now. Yeah, changing over to, to live from a one-bedroom apartment to, to a house, which will be a, a nice transition. And I will have a studio for the first time in my oh, life. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's going to be a really amazing new development for my work and uh, my practice moving forward, that I have a dedicated space that I can work from and in and sort of return to again and again instead of working on the the dining room table, lounge room area. and uh... Well, with everything that has happened to you abroad uh, and all these new adventures ahead of you, what does home, longing and connection mean to you as an Australian person? My relationship with Australia is a complex one. It is home and yet no longer home at the same time. And I, I, I miss it desperately. I miss the light and the colour and the texture. I miss the landscape and the people and the way in which I guess I, I automatically understand 
cultural structures and signifiers in a way that they mystify me here. Um, I, I understand what's happening because it, it is of me. But being away, I hope, has made me both appreciate it more um, but also question it. Isn't Australian society doing its best to uphold the values that I believe are core to the country I, I grew up in? And I, I, I would argue that at times we're failing ourselves. It's difficult to being part of that change from abroad, but also recognising that you know, there will come a time and a place where I, I will hopefully re-enter that dialogue and, and sort of have a stronger voice or a stronger opinion. Well, let's re-enter that dialogue for the moment. You graduated from a fine arts degree at Sydney College of the Arts. Right now, you would have read that the Australian government is doubling the fees for humanities and arts degrees at universities. And there was a recent article in The Guardian that asked Australians to submit their answers to the question, where did your degree take you? And many people responded. One said that their degree took them into journalism and TV. Another went on to become um, an archaeologist. Some say that even though their arts degree or humanity degrees don't equate to the current jobs they have, their time at uni enabled them to question things and to think in a boundless way. I was working with an engineer once who, who remember, told me he was lamenting the fact that he didn't take the arts courses that were on offer to him at uni. He studied engineering because he wanted to help build structures and elements, and he knew how to instructionally build something but he didn't know how to inject emotionality into them. You know, buildings have skin, they have a heart and soul, and he regretted not learning how to artistically inhabit a space. Yeah, well, I think, interestingly, like all of the work that I've done collaborating with scientists over the years and meeting, you know, scientists in the top of their field, the ones that are truly generating new knowledge are the ones that are incredibly creative. And, you know, they, they enjoy speaking to artists and they enjoy working with artists and talking to artists because it's about that creation of new knowledge and it's about a method of thinking. Devaluing the contribution that artists make in that field of thinking more broadly is a total disservice to Australia and Australian culture, not just in the, the art that's produced or the, the theatre or the, you know, the films. It's, it's actually how we think and talk collectively and you know how those conversations go outside the creative industries to other disciplines because yeah to be an incredible engineer you have to be creative to be an incredible scientist you have to be creative that's a common denominator to be the best in almost any field so the idea that if you're teaching creative thinkers they may go on to run businesses or become teachers or do other things that are sort of sit outside the surface level of what we think artists offer is short-sighted it doesn't really understand how all of these things integrate to mm. make society better yeah i agree and yeah through my own arts degree i hope i've been able to contribute to society as a writer producer gallerist and collaborator this path also led me to work in the design and tech sector for five years on human-centric projects that improved cities and transportation. And my arts degree taught me how to connect artists with scientists and architects so that they can invent things that defy genres. I would not have come to these conclusions if I did not do an arts degree. So I have witnessed and benefited from the transformative and immeasurable experience that an arts degree has provided to me. And I wanted to reflect on this moment, especially when the creative sector in Australia continues to take these blows. 
I'd like to know, Sarah, where did your degree take you? It took me on this very long walk across France. Uh, it took me to Mars and back. Uh, it's taken me on this lifelong journey to document leap seconds. I, Sydney College of the Arts, I'm doing my PhD there slowly but surely at the moment. But uh, as an undergrad, I still remember my first sitting in the meeting room when they introduced us to the structure and the, 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 the formality of the school. And they said, if you want to learn technical skills, you know, you should probably exit out the door now. We're here to teach you how to think. And at that moment, I knew I was in the right place. It was like, oh, which, you know, technical skills maybe might be handy right now <laughs> as things get tougher. But I, I can definitely confirm that that the skill that I, I learned through, through studying visual art uh, is that I learned to critically think and, and sort of break down structures that seem too commonplace to yeah. normally be warrant a lot of attention. You know, my obsession with time and measurement and distance, fundamental structures of science, the philosophy of science, maybe aren't the first things that people think of when someone thinks of someone doing a fine arts degree. But the space that the degree offers to follow your own research passions, your own endeavours, is really important and incredibly valuable. And the way in which I've been able to critically take the way I think and the, the things that I want to think about and, and communicate those with audiences both outside the arts, in the sciences, or just to the general public, uh, I, I think these are conversations worth having and that, you know, I'm just one. There are literally thousands of students who go through that program who do that in very different ways and offer texture and vitality to a whole range of disciplines, whether they continue to make art or not. They think in a different way and they approach problems differently. They try and come to a different kinds of solutions and different kinds of avenues for, you know, how we measure success, how we measure outcomes or, or the ways in which things run into the future. You can't necessarily put a KPI against and mark off and say, oh, that's, you know, tick here or that, that raised X number of dollars. We think differently. And in, in that thinking is, is that's generative and that contributes and that's the labour that art does. It, it's about how we think and what we think about and how that kind of falls into all kinds of activities in, in varying ways. Sarah Morowitz, thank you so much for joining me on Interno. I really enjoyed our conversation. Such a pleasure. It's such a delight to talk to you. Uh, take care of yourself and have a really lovely day. I'd like to leave you with some words by Aja Monet, a New York-based lyricist and activist of Cuban-Jamaican descent. And you can find this prose on Instagram via at Aja Monet. I look forward to a day where it doesn't take death for us to come together, where our disagreements are based on ideologies, not personalities, where we love each other enough to listen to truth-telling and speak with purpose, not just to be heard where collective healing is the seed of every fight and every struggle. I look forward to less cliques and more community, new values and ancient gratitude, a movement for the loving and all that it endures as well as challenges. Hyper-empathy is anarchy.
I look forward to anarchy. A society so enriched by difference and empathy. To hurt you is to hurt me. Therefore, we cease the need to be governed. It's not impossible. It takes us imagining and working towards it. Courage and risk. I look forward to a new life studies and the children born of our commitments to one another. Be not discouraged. Be not dismayed. Be defiant. Always be. Interno is produced by myself, Mariam Arcilia. Each podcast episode is accompanied by a transcript and reading notes covering the topics I discuss with guests. You can find this on the website makingart.wack. Thank you for listening. <laughs>